Well, I am I'm looking forward to our fall together. Um, we are working on plans to start the story on September 14th. And this is going to be an exciting journey for us as we travel through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. As we look at the entire story, the entire narrative that God gives us. That oftentimes as we study the Bible, as we study Scripture, as we go through our classes, as we go through sermons, we, we end up focusing on one piece of Scripture. Um, and then we forget the overarching story of God and the story of salvation. So, so we are going to be spending 31 weeks in the story. And the story is, is published as more of a narrative reading, a chronological reading of Scripture. Um, it, it, it selects out text from the NIV. It's carefully selected text that, that is formed into 31 chapters. And we'll be reading through one chapter per week. And so we won't go through every verse of the Bible. We will be only doing about two-thirds of the text of the Bible. Um, but we're going to be going through that together. And we're going to have uh, children's versions as well. So the kids have different age-appropriate versions that they can use that have the same chapter numbers. So they'll be able to read chapter 1 when mom and dad and grandparents are reading chapter 1. And so this will be a church-wide campaign through the entire year through next May. And so that is where we are headed starting in September. We're also going to have small groups available. We're going to start, start some new small groups and get small groups going again. There's a small group study that goes through this by Randy Frazee that will, will help us dig deeper into the story and what it is speaking to us today about. Uh, this is a study that is particularly close to me. We were going through the story a year ago at our previous church as we were trying to discern whether or not to say yes or no to this Montgomery thing. And we were in the story of Abraham and hearing the call of Abraham to go to a place, not knowing exactly what it was all about, not knowing what you were getting into, but a call to be obedient to do something. And so that spoke to us as a part of the discerning process of whether or not to come here. And we decided to come here, so as you can see. So anyway, so we just spent uh, the last... Um, it's been almost a year, so we moved, uh, we moved August 11th, 9th. August 9th to get here, um, so, so we are coming up very quickly on, on our one-year anniversary. Um, today is our 12-year anniversary, though, which is much more important, and so um, thank you for following me around for the last 12 years in all these crazy adventures, not knowing what you're going to get into. Last week we finished our series, Identity Theft, and so we've got a little bit of time in between that series and our next series coming up of the story in September. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to spend our time in Philippians, uh, just looking at the story, the, the, the letter there. Paul was an incredible missionary. He went from city to city and, and primarily focused on the major urban cities, the metropolitan areas that, that were influential in education, influential in culture, influential in commerce. 
And he would go into those places and he would spend some time in that place and, and establish a church. He would, he would shepherd leaders and prepare them for him to be able to leave. And he left behind these churches. Um, but Paul didn't just start a church and then leave. He also, stayed, or he also stayed in touch with them and encouraged them and corrected them and did things to help them get back onto the, the right path. And the great thing about the, the letter to the Philippians is we have a church here that, that Paul is just in love with. A church that, that Paul is, is proud of, one that he has great affection for. And so in Philippians, we have here a letter of encouragement, a letter of support, and we don't have any of the do's and don'ts that we typically have in Paul's letters. We have a message here of encouragement, and, and he is pleased with what is going on in the church in Philippi. This is, this is a healthy church. It's a mature church. It's not needing a lot of correction. It's only needing a, yeah, I love you. You're doing great. And so for us to read through this letter to the Philippians, we are able to see what a mature church looks like. We're able to see what is going well. That, that as we gather here, this is something to model ourselves after. Because something's going right. And so if we can look at an example of what's going right and not just an example of the things that are going wrong, we have a picture here of, of maturity in Christ and maturity as a church. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at Philippians. Philippians is one of the most quoted of Paul's letters. It's got all these little uh, coffee mug sayings, refrigerator magnet type sayings, where, where we have these sound bites that are very encouraging and very challenging for us. To, to live is Christ and to die is gain, is in the first chapter. And this, this is just this great charge as, as followers of Jesus. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That's one we want up on our refrigerator. We want, we want printed and in front of us to remind us that, that we can get through anything, that we can do all things because he gives us the strength to do it. But Philippians is so much more than just these sound bites. There's so much more here for us as, as, as we go through what Paul is, is telling the church there, as he seeks to, to give them encouragement, to lift them up, to edify them. Paul has a great personal affection for this church. He loves this church. It has a special place in his heart and he wants to give to them. It's, it's really a letter that is an overflow of Paul's love for the church, his heart for the church, and what's going on there. They are so dear to him and so close to him, and he wants to give back to them. And so starting in Philippians chapter 1, this is, this is how he starts his letter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, being confident of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. The affection of Christ Jesus. Paul loves this church with the affection of Christ Jesus. What is Jesus' affection for us? Jesus' affection for us, a love that leads all the way to a cross. And so Jesus, willing to die for us and, and loving us that much, that is the love that Paul has for this church. This is not a simple salutation, a simple greeting. It's not just a, a simple introduction that says, hey, how's it going? There's a depth of love here, a depth of, of affection that is deeply rooted in Paul. He loves this church. And so why is it that, that Paul loves this church so much? We, we don't get any more in this letter of him describing why he loves them. There's a relationship here, and, and, and that is assumed because the two know each other. The church knows Paul, and Paul knows the church. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 16 today. Acts chapter 16 gives us the backstory. So cue flashback. Here we are at the start of the church where Paul first visits the Philippians. And he comes in and, and first converts people to start this church. So Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district in Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. This is all just in several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer of purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were uh, then, the, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, "Come and stay at my house." And she persuaded us. So we've got here the start, this this first step as a missionary coming in and finding the people. And and Paul's typical mode is to go find the synagogue, go find the Jewish people who are gathering there and start working with them first. And he goes seeking out this house of prayer, the synagogue, and he can't find one. And really all he finds is this women's Bible study on the side of the river that the ladies have gathered, there are no men, there are not enough men to gather a synagogue here. And so, so the women are on the side of the river studying and praying and spending their Sabbath time together. And so making the most of what he has, Paul goes and, and joins these women and joins conversation with them. And we've got Lydia here, who is this dealer of purple cloth. 
this fashionista of the day, where, where she is, is dealing in, in cloth and fashion, and, and she owns a home here in Philippi and is very wealthy and is actually from Asia, but, but travels back and forth between these major metropolitan cities. That's similar to someone who would, would have an apartment in New York and an apartment in L.A. And, and be in the fashion industry going back and forth. This is Lydia. She's the CEO of, of her fashion empire. And so we have this wealthy woman who is a believer. She, she is worshiping God. She has rejected the, the pagan culture that's around her. The, the pagan culture that is so predominant in the Roman time. And she rejects this and becomes a believer in God. But her faith is not yet complete. She doesn't yet know the full picture. That is, as she rejects paganism and decides and believes that there is only one God, she's still on a journey. She's still a searcher seeking out this faith of hers. And Paul is able to come in and fill in the gaps here. And give her a clearer picture of, of who Jesus is. He presents the gospel to her. And her eyes are open and she's convicted and believes. And is transformed by this experience. That Lydia now is a follower of Jesus. And not only that, but she has such influence that she can't just keep that to herself. That her entire household, her entire household is converted because of the gospel. That because of the message of Jesus, they're converted and follow him. And so we have this businesswoman who now is a believer. And so she invites Paul in to stay at her house, which is probably a pretty sweet place. And she in, invites him to stay with her there. And so Paul, who has been on such a journey, living in probably less than ideal circumstances, spending a lot of time on a boat, a lot of time en route to the next place, and now he has the comfort of Lydia's house, where he can rest and continue his work here. What a great relationship between those two. Paul coming in and sharing the message, and Lydia being transformed by that. Can we start to see why Paul's heart is so much here? But we don't just have this high society businesswoman. There is more to do in Philippi. And so we continue on in verse 16. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. The girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled and annoyed with her that he turned around and said to the spirits, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace 
to face the authorities. This is quite the bizarre encounter. We've gone from the businesswoman Lydia, who is seeking the Lord, praying on the side of the river, really looking for the Lord. And now we have this slave girl, this one who is impoverished, this one who is taken advantage of, who is imprisoned and exploited. Possessed by a demon that is calling Paul out and just getting under his skin, following him around, just really causing trouble. And Paul comes in and delivers her from that. That through the power of the spirits, the girl is renewed. The girl is restored. There's new life for her. Because Paul is there and speaks very boldly and directly and calls that out of her. And so she finds this freedom and restoration that she had been mocking through this demon. That a God who brings salvation is now brought her freedom and redemption. The tables turn there. But Paul isn't done. The deliverance of a slave girl is pretty exciting and pretty out there and pretty bizarre, but it continues. And in the next section, we encounter another person. Because now Paul has been drugged into the marketplace. Paul and Silas both are being arrested for freeing this woman from the demonic oppression that she has. Starting in verse 20, they brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, They were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. And so there's this this bizarre turn of events here where where Paul and Silas are coming in, and they're, they're ministering to the people here, and now the town is in an uproar because these merchants, these owners of this slave, have have stirred things up. And now they're, they're hauled into this trial. And the magistrates determine that, yes, they need to be beaten and thrown into prison. And so they are flogged. And then the magistrates say, okay, that's enough. Throw them into jail and keep them safe there. It's an interesting thing there. To, that the, the magistrates are wanting to protect them after the flogging. Not quite sure what's going on there. But throw them into prison so they'll be safe. And so the jailer has these orders to to protect these men in jail. And so the jailer takes it upon himself to take them to the inner part of the jail and put them into stocks. Now I think when when I imagine stocks, I think of some sort of of New England 1700s kind of thing where you've got the the boards across here with the three holes and you stick your head in and you stick your arms in and, and you're kind of in the town square there left for everybody to mock you. And that's the punishment that they have. Well, I've read that the Roman stocks are a little different. 
that they actually are putting you into some sort of contraption that actually cramps you down into such a way that your body is twisted and starts to cramp up. And so it's not just simply the here I am locked up, but it's actually torture. That it's this excruciating pain because your body is twisted up into these stalks. And so the jailer has orders to protect them by putting them into jail. And so the jailer goes a step further and protects them by torturing them. And so we get a vision for who this jailer is. He's this rough and tough, blue-collar worker trying to do his job, but he wants to have maybe a little bit of fun with it. And doesn't treat the prisoners well. He tortures them, puts them into this jail cell. And that's this character, the jailer. And so Paul, not um, one who is unfamiliar with jail, is here once again. And this is his response. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Paul, who has been used by the Spirit to deliver a demon, has been thrown into jail, flogged, and tortured. And his response is prayer and song. That he is so in love with God, he is so transformed by the message of Jesus, that he can't help but worship. That when all things are going wrong and all things are bad, that the response for Paul is worship. I'm going to sing praises to God and I'm going to pray to God. I'm not going to feel sorry for myself. I'm not going to seek vengeance. I'm not going to try to figure out how to escape. But my response is going to be to worship God. And so we see here Paul's response which is so incredible. But then the story gets weird. That's all the normal stuff. Now it gets weird. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison was shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he freaked out a little bit. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself because his prisoners had now escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, What must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. So we have this jailer who is taking care of Paul by torturing him in prison. 
And this jailer, in his roughness, his rough edges, his hard heart, the brutality that he has towards Paul, now falls at his feet. He falls at the feet of Paul and says, what must I do to be saved? You see, God comes in and encounters him in such an incredible way. That God is not coming in here just to, to free Paul. God is pursuing this jailer. God is pursuing him and desiring him and longing for him. And he comes in here and literally shakes him up. And so now there is this drastic transformation, this drastic change in this man. That the jailer comes in and, and the one who was beating and the one who was torturing is now dressing his wounds, is now bringing him into his home, is providing him a meal. And this jailer, his life, his family is transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And so this is the church that Paul is reminiscent of. When Paul says, I have the affection of Jesus for you, he has in mind this businesswoman, Lydia. He has in mind this, this slave girl that was freed of this demonic activity. He has in mind this jailer who was so brutal to him and so cruel to him, but completely transformed by Jesus. And this is the church that Paul writes to as he writes this letter. And so as, as we go through this letter over the next few weeks, this is the context of the church that we're talking about. That as Paul is encouraging this church, as Paul is giving them great accolades for what they're doing, as he is speaking so highly of them, this is the church that he is talking about. These stories of conversion, these stories of transformation... This is who Paul is talking about. And it gives us a picture of a healthy church. What incredible diversity there is here. That we have here a businesswoman dressed up, looking great, wealthy. You've got the slave girl who's had a pretty rough life. You've got this blue-collar jailer and somehow, through Jesus, these strangers come together as a family. The ones who are so different are not only transformed personally, but are brought into relationship with one another to form a body. That ones that look so different on the outside whose pasts are so different, whose lives are so broken, who are in all different places of life, now come together in perfect unity because of Jesus. That there is no common bond between them aside from Jesus. That the businesswoman, the slave girl, the jailer, they have no business hanging out with each other. 
No reason to be together. No reason to care for one another. No reason to be in relationship with one another. No reason to share life with one another. Except for the fact that Jesus pursued them, transformed them, and completely changed their life. And now that is the only common thing that they need to be a church. That regardless of what's on the outside, regardless of what's in the past, regardless of any situation that you're in, Jesus brings this perfect unity together in the church. And is that not just an incredible message for us today? That we look at this church, this church that is loved so much by Paul, and we look at our church, and and would Paul say the same thing about us? Would he have such great words of encouragement for us and, and great affection for us? Is this a place where we are completely unified by the gospel, by the message of Jesus, the good news of him? Is that what draws us together? Or is there something more superficial that draws us together? I think as as humans, we have this tendency to only want to be with people like us. We like for things to be very homogenous. And we're drawn to and attracted to things that are very similar and comfortable. And then we get into an environment like this where there is increasing diversity and things start to get a little bit uncomfortable. And as as churches begin to grow and bring more people in, suddenly things don't look quite the way we liked before. And we wonder, can I be in this place anymore? Because people aren't my age People started having kids, or their kids grew up, or, or things change, or there's all these different demographics that we draw together around. But the message of Jesus trumps all of that. That his love and his grace is so perfect for us that regardless of the situation that we find ourselves in, and regardless of the situation of the people who walk through those doors, into our body. Regardless of that, Jesus is in pursuit of you. That he loves you, he longs for you, and he desires you. And it's not just the ones that are here already. He wants that. And so be encouraged by this story. That as Paul writes this letters to the church in Philippi, here is a church that should not have made it. This church plant should have been a failure. You've got this church with a businesswoman and a slave girl and a jailer and just this hodgepodge of people in a Roman city that doesn't even have enough people to form a synagogue. This is a disaster waiting to happen. And here, all these years later, Paul writes to this church, good job, you're doing great. This is what it means to be church. This is what it means to be church. Let's be standing. As we continue to pray together, 
God, what do you want to do through me? He is calling us into something great. He is calling us into this grand adventure. You think about these, these Philippians here looking at this church that Paul has left them in in a very short period of time, and, and they're sitting around in Lydia's house looking at each other like, who are you? Why are we together? Why is this hodgepodge of people in one spot? Why are we all friends and family? It's because of Jesus. And that becomes our central driving force through everything that we do as a church. That regardless of whatever's happened in the past or whatever walks through that door or whatever we go through, that Jesus is that center point for us. And so we're going to spend some time in prayer. And, and this time of prayer we've designed as a way for you to pray with one another. It's a time for you to come and, and pray with one of the shepherds. It's a time for you to reflect personally on where you're at. But this is a message of encouragement. A message that Jesus is what draws us all together. And for us to refocus on that. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for, for the message of the cross. That through the good news of Jesus, what is unnatural for us as humans becomes natural. That we are brought together from such diversity to love you and honor you and worship you. And that's why we gather God, bless us in this time. God, for, for those of us who are hurting, for those of us who have distanced ourselves from you in some way, God, I pray that you speak to us and that we realign ourselves with you and your will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's pray together.